Hi, thanks for listening. In 20 seconds or less, I wanted to ask if you would consider supporting the show with a one-time donation of $1 to $3. The funds go to subscription fees, equipment upkeep, and a general sense of well-being. Links in the show notes. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, on with the show. Chapter 18 William Watkins liked being called Billy. It made him feel like he was just an ordinary kid. Billy was the name of a person who had a group of close friends, went on fun adventures, and had a sweet girlfriend. William had none of these things. He didn't even have the luxury of being called Billy. His parents, wealthy socialites from old money, preferred the more formal and stuffy, William. Not only did this moniker do nothing to garner him a circle of close friends, fun adventures, or a sweet girlfriend, it facilitated the ridicule of his peers. He was addressed by neither William nor Billy by them, but rather Willie, and always in the most disdainful and mocking of tones. "'Do you have any plans, or are you free, Willie?' Willy Wonka, almost always changed to Willy Wanker. And, of course, when your dad plays with you, he's playing with his little Willy. The taunting crowd's greatest hits. William Willy Watkins just wanted to be Billy. But no one ever called him that. When the apocalypse hit, William's parents thought their money would save them. Certainly, provision would be made for the elite of society, as important as people such as they were to life and culture. The government and the powers that be would have some secret location for the rich and privileged to go, isolated and protected from the huddled masses, ready to emerge to rebuild society again in their image. It came as a shocking reality, a reality for which they were not prepared in the least, when society crumbled around them and no fleet of black SUVs came amid the shouts and protests of the less fortunate to whisk their kind away, unprepared to face the harsh reality and unwilling to use their wealth to help themselves or their neighbors, William's parents huddled against a wall-sized bookshelf of first editions and were torn apart. William loved his parents and wanted to feel sad at losing them, he was certainly afraid about the state of the world, and was concerned about who was going to take care of him now that his parents were gone. But the fact of the matter was, he was not particularly close to his parents. They were emotionally distant. Being immersed in their societal concerns, they kept him at a physical distance too, sending him off to the finest boarding schools, which always seemed to be far away. When it became evident to seemingly all but William's parents that things were not improving, all the students at William's boarding school were sent home, to be with their families during such dark times. When William arrived, he found his parents fretting about what someone was going to do about the current state of affairs 
and who was coming to get them. They saw their son's return as something of a nuisance, an intrusion into their own self-important fretting. When the horde pushed their way into his parents' mansion, William ran and hid in the wine cellar. The dead did not look for him there as he hid among the bottles, bottles that were always displayed but never consumed. He covered his ears there in the dark as his parents' screams were cut short, replaced by other sounds. Eating sounds. William wanted to be an ordinary kid, but of course he wasn't. At first nannies, then butlers, followed by headmasters and teachers, saw to his needs, what they thought he needed. He had never had to take care of himself, and so when the time to do so was thrust upon him, he failed. Dirty, hungry, and tired, he wandered the streets of Montgomery Heights, one of the more prestigious suburbs of Bay City. Forced to a constant state of hyper-awareness by thousands of the dead wandering around, much more hungry than he was, he had little time or fortitude to come up with a plan. When a man who introduced himself as Dermot Mulney approached and seemed sympathetic to his plight, William was receptive. Mulney wore a dark green button-up shirt and pants, the uniform of Bay City Electric Company. He looked to William to be about fifty years old, the same age as his father. Mulney said he was alone and scared too, and suggested that maybe the two of them could travel together. William knew enough not to talk to strangers, especially those who wore laborers' clothes and were always looking for a handout, or so his parents told him. But William was alone and scared. When Mulney told him he would take care of him, he accepted the offer. It was only later that he learned that the dead were not the only predators out there. At first things were fine. Mulney fed him, gave him things he had found. That first week with Mulney made William feel like maybe things were going to be okay. The second week, William knew they weren't. Mulney said he wanted to show him something, something in his basement. He followed Mulney down. When William asked what it was, Mulney said it was right in there, and pointed to a chain-link cage in the corner. When he asked why Mulney had a cage in his basement, he was told it was because the thing in there was valuable, and times being what they were, he kept it locked up so no one could steal it. Of course there was nothing locked in the cage of any value not until William was locked in there. At first he thought Mulney was playing a game. He was laughing, after all. But when he refused to let him out, William became concerned. Mulney's explanation did nothing to alleviate his fears, either. Mulney said there was no emotion in killing a bug you found in your house. Anybody could do that. The real pain and misery, pain and misery that most people avoided and shunned, but that Mulney welcomed and embraced, came from killing something you had grown to love. Mulney loved William now, and so soon, William Watkins would have to die. Mulney kept him locked up for a long time. William lost track of how long, because there were no windows in the basement to see the sun, to track the progress of days. He had no resources to help him deal with his new circumstances, having been cared for his whole life but William had always been a quick learner, and he was receiving a crash course now. 
He learned, for instance, that acting afraid and docile caused Molny to get careless and do things like turn his back on him. Molny would bring him his meals and pet his head while he ate, telling him how bad it was going to hurt old Derm to end him, relishing the thought and almost quivering with pleasure at the prospect. When William would question Molny as to why he did not do it already, old Derm would get mad. When Molny was mad, he never forgot to lock the cage door behind him. After eating, if William had acted scared and docile enough, Molny would take his dishes and place them in the utility sink against the wall. He would leave the cage door open sometimes when he did this. William watched Molny, learned his behavior, and planned his move. His plans did not extend beyond running out of the cage, grabbing the metal fork left dry by the sink, and stabbing old Durham with it. But it was enough. William was not strong, and Molny was meaty so the wound was superficial at best. It was enough to surprise him, however, and gave William enough time to run up the stairs and out of the house. By the time Molny pushed his way out the front door and down his front steps, William was gone. Molny came looking for him, though. He had his van, and he knew the area. It was two towns over in Little Bend that Molny almost caught up to him. He was chasing William through the woods that stretched along the I-70, heading into Little Bend. Molny saw him running, and almost had him, when he saw William dart from the woods and into a large old school bus. Molny smiled and was about to step out of the tree line when he saw the shufflers approaching. Molny ducked back into the trees and waited. When the horde passed, so had Molny's opportunity. He watched as three figures, two males and a female, climbed down from the bus, watched the older male shoot a tight pattern into the windshield of the overturned Humvee. He remained hidden in the trees and watched as William stared at him through a window in the back of the bus. For a second, Molny thought the kid was going to rat him out, that he would convince the three with the guns to come after him. Molny tensed and thought about bolting, but the pointing finger never came. The three with the guns never turned his way. William simply ducked down and disappeared. It was then that Dermot Mulney knew William loved him too. He crouched down and slunk off into the cover of the trees. He would give William some time. The kid was scared, was all. He would give him some time and then come for him. As he retraced the miles he had come chasing William through the woods, Dermot Mulney vowed he would get his William back. Chapter 19 Billy stood on the steps of the bus with his hands raised. In one hand he held a torn open bag of frozen raspberries. Nicole kept her pistol pointed at Billy. Taking his cue from Nicole, Sam kept his rifle leveled at him as well. Nicole stared at Billy. Where the hell did you come from, kid? she said. Billy looked back down the highway. Nicole did not follow his gaze. "'Well, what were you doing on that bus?' Nicole said, her voice taking on a harder edge. "'I wasn't stealing, I promise,' he said, shifting his weight uneasily from foot to foot. Nicole looked at the bag of raspberries in his hand. Seeing her gaze, Billy looked at the forgotten bag, his face revealing an expression of shock, like he did not know how they got there 
and had never seen his hand before. He sighed and hung his head. There's your crunching, Walt. You want me to plug him? Nicole said. Sam looked over at Nicole in shock. Seeing that she did not flinch, he resumed his vigilance, keeping his gun trained on Billy. Billy's anxiety amped. He was about to plead when Walt spoke up. Nah, man, don't kill him. He just looks hungry and scared, you know. Nicole maintained her stance for several more seconds, then lowered her gun and sighed. All right, off the bus, kid. We're going west, so, uh, Nicole said as she stared him down. I, I could go west, Billy said. His words made Nicole's face twitch ever so slightly. It's just, I needed to get out of that city, and one direction is as good as another, Billy said. Nicole looked away. Sorry, kid, we don't have the room, so uh, you best be on your way, she said. Walt looked over at Nicole. Well, he could ride with me on my bus. I've got plenty of room, he said. Nicole looked sharply over at Walt and was about to protest further when she saw Sam staring at her, a mom-can-we-keep-him look on his face. Nicole's mouth clamped shut as her eyes darted back and forth between Sam and Walt. You know, this is getting, Nicole said as Sam, Walt, and Billy all stared at her. Nicole pinched the bridge of her nose and then rubbed her face, before turning and stomping back to the GTO. All right, Walt said as he and Sam, all smiles, approached Billy. My name's Walt. This here's Sam. The girl, well, she's Nicole, man. We're going to Colorado, Walt said. Halfway back to the car, Nicole shouted, Not standing around, we're not! Sam waved to Walt and Billy and hurried after Nicole. Walt waved Billy into the bus and then climbed aboard. Sam hustled up and climbed in the passenger side of the GTO. Nicole looked back at Billy, who was sitting in the front seat near Walt. She climbed in behind the wheel and started the engine. Were you really going to plug that kid if Walt had said yes? Sam said. Nicole put the car in drive and did not look at Sam. No, but that kid didn't know that, did he? Nicole said. She hit the gas and headed down the highway.